open your cerebral cortex and shift your lobes into upper beta phase because you are going to have Bitcoin knowledge transmitted directly into your vestibulocochlear. Your host of Bitcoin Knowledge is Trace Mayer, an early Bitcoin advocate since it cost a quarter, but this is not intended to be investment advice. A doctor of jurisprudence, but this is definitely not legal advice. And an investor in core cryptocurrency infrastructure, including Armory, BitPay, Kraken, and Mitagio, but this is not a recommendation of those services. Here, you get fed via direct mind download with pure and free Bitcoin knowledge. Welcome back to the Bitcoin Knowledge Podcast. We have a very exciting interview with Paul Chow. He's the CEO and founder of Ledger X. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me here. So a little bit of your background. You're an algorithmic trader, former trader at Goldman Sachs, uh, decided to build Ledger X. I'm really curious, like, why did you pick the name Ledger X? Well, we wanted something that would reflect um, nature of the blockchain in general. And I think thinking of it as a global ledger, distributed ledger, made a lot of sense. And at the same time, our exchange wants to support perhaps multiple cryptocurrencies in the future. So we didn't want to just necessarily be tied to Bitcoin. So X obviously stands for exchange. And I think the combination of two, um, it, this led to the name. So, you know, from your website, it's LedgerX is an institutional trading and clearing platform that has applied for registration with the CFTC to operate as a swap execution facility and derivatives clearing organization. LedgerX intends to list and clear physically settled options on digital currencies, for example, Bitcoin. That's very exciting. You know, I've kind of talked about how we have these seven network effects all taking place at the same time. We have speculation, we have merchants, consumers, the security slash mining, we have developers. The sixth network effect being financialization, which is the one before kind of world reserve currency status, uh, settlement currency status. And so you're working on something that most people that I interview for the podcast just aren't in. You're in this sixth area of financialization that really feeds the first network effect of speculation. Let's get a little bit granular. What is a swap? You know, for a lot of people listening to the podcast, they probably have no idea. Like, what is a swap? Yeah, so a swap is a broad term for financial derivatives. And a swap can have many different forms, many different terms and the conditions of, of, of the trade itself. Um, in our particular case, our swaps will be options. So they'll resemble puts and calls, European-style exercise, which means that you can only exercise the option at the end of the expiration uh, and they're physically settled swaps. So at the end of expiration, if you decide to exercise, you will actually receive underlying Bitcoin. And that's a key part for a lot of our institutional customers who need a regulated platform here in the U.S., ideally at the federal level, to trade these swaps and actually get underlying Bitcoin. Yeah, so let's kind of go through an example of one of these. It sounds like we've got three different periods. We've got the opening, the closing, and the settlement of the contract. So maybe you can walk us a little bit through like the nature or the mechanics of one of these. Let's take an easy one, like a Bitcoin dollar option. Yeah. So for example, we might list something like a one month call option on Bitcoin, denominated US dollars. And if you're a speculator and you think Bitcoin will end at $500 or greater a month from now, you can take US dollars and actually purchase this call option. And a month from now, if Bitcoin's higher than $500, like you mentioned, that's when you do the settlement. So you exercise and say, yes, I want to buy Bitcoin at $500. Our clearinghouse deducts $500 from your bank account, US dollars. 
and it gives you the underlying Bitcoin as a result. So if a month from now Bitcoin is at $700, then you've essentially made a $200 profit. So we're not dealing with any smart contracts yet when we're settling these instruments. That's correct. So the options themselves are handled by the exchange. And so they're designed and settled by the exchange itself. We do own blockchain transactions for our customers to send collateral to us and for us to send the Bitcoin they want back to them. Um, but smart contracts are not currently part of it. All. So with Ledger X, they're physically settled into Bitcoin on the blockchain as opposed to Terra Exchange. They're cash settled. So you're going to get dollars uh, even if you bet on the price of Bitcoin going up. Right. Why should people use Ledger X then? I think there's a very big difference between cash settled contracts and physically settled contracts. You know, I think they both have their use cases. For us, our customers, in the course of their business, many of them actually need the underlying Bitcoin. So having something that's physically settled is very important because some of their users will actually be interested in obtaining it at some point. So giving them the ability to hedge on a physically settled platform is really important for a lot of our customers. So just like a car manufacturer might need its commodity or somebody might want the physical gold or the physical silver from those contracts, so likewise... You know, people can't eat dollars, but they can eat pork bellies or they can eat cattle or they can eat wheat, right? right? So it's important to get that actual underlying commodity settled, or at least that's kind of your opinion on it. Yeah, so our opinion is that, again, both are very important. I think for a lot of speculative cases, cash-settled options or futures or other swaps make a lot of sense, where you're only really interested in the kind of economic exposure of it. But there's also a huge category for physically settled. And I think one of the most powerful things about Bitcoin is that it's a lot more than just a price index to make bets on. Once you actually have, whether you're an institution or otherwise, or a company, once you have access to the underlying Bitcoin, what you can do with it afterwards is tremendously broad and flexible. Former Commissioner Bart Chilton, he seemed to be very interested in the actual delivery in the gold and silver markets, for example. And we have also got things that prevent or give excuses for not physically delivering, like force majeure or duress. What are some of the conditions where people could be forced not to settle into their Bitcoin, but actually have to receive dollars, for example? Yeah, I mean, there are always these force majeure cases that could come up. Um, you know, the most extreme one, obviously, is if the entire Internet goes down then it's impossible to obviously broadcast a transaction to move anything on the blockchain. And so we have procedures in place so we could delay settlement. Uh, almost in, in every case, we won't, you know, settlement in U.S. dollars won't necessarily be, be the way to do it. How about counterparty risk? Are people who open up these contracts then exposed to the counterparty risk of someone who's taking the other side of it? How does that work out? Yeah, it's a great question. I, I mean, I think if you look at the ecosystem right now, the vast majority of trades in, in a lot of ways are done bilaterally over the counter between trusted counterparties. So you might have a very big institution that, um, say, your second market and you have a trading desk. Many people are comfortable dealing with second market and comfortable with that particular transaction. Now, unfortunately, there is always sort of a risk with bilateral transactions that counterparties will default, which could leave you in a very exposed position from a risk point of view. So LedgerX's approach from the beginning was to also not just start an exchange, but have a clearinghouse attached to that exchange that will be the central counterparty to all transactions. And so you wouldn't face the individual counterparty risk that you would with doing over-the-counter bilateral trades. Every single trade is novated, and the clearinghouse guarantees those trades. And I think that's very important because we no longer have to monitor the credit risk 
of all these multiple trading counterparties that you might have. And you increase the size of the potential liquidity because now a lot of smaller players that bigger institutions were unwilling to deal with before because they couldn't trust their credit essentially can now go on the platform because the credit issue is mitigated. You used an interesting term there, uh, novation. In the context that we're talking about, what exactly is a novation and like how does that impact legally the, uh, the structures and the contracts that we're talking about? Right. So, you know, Trace, for example, if you were to sign up to Ledger X and I was on the platform as well and you and I did a trade, initially at the first moment of trade, you and I are facing each other in terms of risk. So innovation is a process where at the time the trade is completed, before it's sent to the clearinghouse, the counterparty is changed from each other to Ledger X clearing. So now you only face Ledger X clearing in terms of risk and I only face Ledger X clearing as well, which increases the stability of, of the market. So... This is a way to just preempt the types of risks that we saw with Refco or yeah. with Hertzstop Bank back in the 70s. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think a more recent example, if you look at 2008-2009, during this turbulent financial crisis, we saw that credit default swaps were always done bilaterally between large banks and institutions. And as certain banks and institutions started to get weaker from a capital point of view, the counterparty risk would increase. And you were left with a position where multiple institutions faced defaults against each other in a way that was very destabilizing to the financial system. So a lot of the point behind Dodd-Frank was to try to encourage the financial industry to go away from bilateral contracts and move more towards centrally clearing contracts. And, you know, that's the ledger X approach as well. Is part of this also then that when the auditors come in to look at an asset on the books of one of your clients that there's a lot more transparency to the actual valuation of the swap that's been executed? Yeah, that's a great question. So, you know, sort of what you're discussing is that if you have counterparty risk with a certain swap, sometimes you have to discount the value of the swap if your counterparty is in not great financial health because there's a less of a chance that they'll actually come true with the trade, right? So by centrally clearing, and that, that's a very messy process, you have to make a lot of assumptions about your counterpart's creditworthiness, um, you know, and the ability to repay you. And especially if you have a lot of counterparties, then you're making a lot of assumptions. So you're right that regulators don't really understand the actual true risks in a lot of these bilateral trades. Now, for a centrally cleared trade, um, there's a lot of visibility because all the counterparties, there's only one counterparty for our transactions, and it's a clearinghouse. And because you have this central clearinghouse, the regulators can now just go to one point and actually audit the clearinghouse's financial stability to get a sense of how stable all the contracts are. And at the same time, they also have visibility as to how big the positions are that all the participants have, because the clearinghouse has records for all of that. Whereas with swap and bilateral trades, it's a little bit more difficult to see whether there are enormous positions being taken. And I think regulators want to see that you don't want to have a few players concentrating risk in such a massive way, like we saw with the JP Morgan whale in London, for example. And also impacting the ability of the auditors to get an, a true or accurate assessment of the underlying assets that are on a balance sheet. For example, we could see real estate owned assets that are wrapped up in a swap and then swapped only for like a 30 day period or even a five day period to appease the, the auditors. And then it kind of comes back. And if they're doing that with trusted counterparties, that would be a way that they could obfuscate the true state of their financial condition, right? Uh, even to regulators, for example. Right. But when we have this central clearinghouse 
that's going on, it's going to be much more difficult to engage in this type of accounting sorcery. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the central clearinghouse takes a lot of precautions to make sure that um, the records and position sizes and counterparties that own those positions are accurate and they reflect the true economic exposure that each of these participants have in a way that's very difficult to obfuscate. So, you know, the classic thing is we do extensive KYC on our customers. The last one, we prevent things like the same customer signing up for two accounts and therefore having a misleading view as to what their underlying risk is. So, you know, in the way that you would net it between the two, we prevent things like that from happening. And so I think a clearinghouse gives regulators one of the best, most transparent and most economically sound views as to what participants are doing. And what's actually going on with these contracts, which given Bitcoin's volatility, we could see really big changes, particularly since they're only settled at the end of the contract term. Right. Correctly. Right. So we saw Bitcoin go from what, $13 to like $1,300 in a year period. Right. right. <laughs> it, it could get kind of crazy. Right. Not many asset classes have that kind of volatility and those kinds of moves. Yeah. Do you see that type of volatility returning to Bitcoin? It's only got a $3 billion market cap supporting a, an economy with at least hundreds of thousands of very active participants and now an entire industry uh, being built on top of it with companies like BitNet and BitGo and uh, BitPay and Overstock.com wanting to pay employees uh, in Bitcoin and, and all the way up and down the supply chain. I mean, what are we looking at in terms of the, the volatility of Bitcoin? Is it going to return? Is it going to get crazy again? Yeah, so this is one of those cases where volatility is a good thing for options contracts in particular. You know, there are a lot of types of derivatives, futures, forwards, other types of swaps. Options in particular can often benefit from volatility in Bitcoin. You know, as you mentioned, it is a $3 billion market cap right now. I think one of the key beliefs here at LedgerX is that with a federally regulated U.S. platform, a lot of institutional money that's been on the sidelines will now get to flow into Bitcoin, which will hopefully increase the overall market cap. And I think that particular phase, once that happens, will probably encourage quite a bit of volatility in the price. You know, we've been following Bitcoin for the last three, four years now, and we've seen a lot of these phases where there's quite a bit of volatility and interest and speculation, and then periods of kind of consolidation in just months where the price is stable, which I don't necessarily think is a bad thing. In fact, I think it could be very healthy for Bitcoin in general. Um, I think we're in one of those phases right now where there was a correction, and I think we're kind of consolidating this phase. Um, I think there'll be other catalysts that come down the line that will bring volatility back into Bitcoin. Is there any reason why your contracts would not be able to settle into Bitcoin? For example, we see with gold for gold markets that, that they can force cash settlement in some cases. But last time I checked, there was plenty of gold above ground stockpiles. There, there should never be a shortage of gold. It's just a function of price. So likewise, is there any any reason why we wouldn't be able to physically settle these contracts with Bitcoin? No, not not in my view. You know, I think the gold, oil, and other commodities area examples are are um, are interesting because outside of like the available supply issues, you can have delivery issues. So if you're waiting for a tanker to come to a certain port or delivery point, and there's a hurricane that happens during that time, you know, you can delay delivery significantly. Um, and other commodities are also very difficult to transport. And so those things affect whether you can actually physically deliver at the point of expiration. With Bitcoin, you know, in a lot of ways, it looks like a commodity. Um, delivery is one of the easiest parts of it. So we kind of just completely remove all those classic issues that commodity futures and commodity markets contracts used to have in that complete that, that side of things. So I think 
delivery of Bitcoin and settling these contracts um, physically will not be an issue compared to other commodity markets. When I was down at the Miami conference, uh, one of the questions to the VC panel was, you know, does Bitcoin have a killer app? And I was the last one to answer. I said, yeah, Bitcoin's killer app is that it's no one's liability like gold. Uh, so when we're talking about being able to settle into something, do you think there's an importance there with Bitcoin not being anybody's liability, with it with it acting like a commodity but still having this transportability? Yeah, I mean, I think that's Bitcoin's greatest advantage. You know, it, it is like gold um, in, in that it's a commodity that's, you know, fixed in supply in a lot of ways. Um, but the transportability of it is incredibly convenient. Um, the divisibility of it, which has always been important for commodities that were used in sort of more monetary transactions, um, the precise ability to divide Bitcoin to whatever precision that you want um, it is, is, it gives it a huge advantage in a lot of ways. Do you see other commodities and currencies eventually being settled into Bitcoin? Like, are we going to see gold to Bitcoin uh, swaps or oil or other, other commodities like that being traded like a, an oil Bitcoin contract? Yeah, actually, our internal view is that Bitcoin will be very complementary to a lot of the other fiat currencies. So just like you have things settled into euros or yen or U.S. dollars, of course, other contracts will, you know, because of the portability of Bitcoin and how easy it is to transfer, I think there'll be a large, large demand for gold to Bitcoin settled contracts or any other commodity or even other financial products. Now, all of this is great, but it has to be built on a solid foundation of security. You know, if you're going to be physically delivering Bitcoins, you got to make sure that they're secure. I've interviewed Michael Perklin from C4. Uh, they've recently released crypto security standards, work they've done in conjunction with BitGo and Armory. Can you talk a little bit to that? Are the Bitcoins safe here at LedgerX? Why would they be safe? <laughs> I mean, that's the foundation all of this is being built on. Yeah, and, and honestly, that's that's a very important question. Of course, we get the same exact um, questions from our regulators. You know, as a clearinghouse, we custody Bitcoin on behalf of our clients. So safety of that Bitcoin, but also the quick and timely settlement are very important to us. So by far, the vast majority of our resources, both time and money, have been spent on layer after layer of security procedure associated with our Bitcoin holdings. So we obviously use multi-sig. We use an outside vendor to manage one of our hotkeys. So even if LedgerX clearing is completely compromised, the attacker wouldn't have access to transfer that Bitcoin out. And we've invested a lot in state-of-the-art hardware and software security modules to secure our particular hotkeys when we use them. And, you know, it's the kind of thing where our model is a little bit different than I think other spot exchanges, where as other spot exchanges have grown over time, they just end up custodying more and more of their clients' Bitcoin. So they become more and more attractive a target to hackers. Um, for us, we hold Bitcoin for the life of the swap, for the life of the option trade. After the transaction is over, you can do whatever you want with the Bitcoin. In fact, we anticipate that most of our customers will withdraw significant amounts of Bitcoin after the, the contract is settled. And so we don't intend to be a long-term large repository of Bitcoin holdings. We happen to do it just to support the contracts trading themselves. Now, I've heard rumors that some of the large banks, they run these drills like they want to find all the gold being held by customers uh, in their bank. And they, they run these drills where they need to figure out how to quickly retitle that into the name of the bank so that, you know, ultimately it could probably be given to the government as part of a seizure if we were to have some type of currency crisis or things like that. You mentioned, you know, the, the contracts settle 
you're not going to be holding those Bitcoins. You assume the customers are going to want to withdraw. How quickly can they do that? How fast can the client demand physical delivery of their Bitcoins and verify it in the blockchain? Sure. So our operational procedures are designed such that when a customer logs into their customer portal and requests withdrawal of Bitcoin assets, we'll be able to transfer it to whatever address they want. So if you compare it to the stock market, for example, where you have T plus, T plus three. three settlement, it's significantly faster. In fact, talking to regulators, um, I think they're often surprised at how quickly they can settle versus other commodities or securities that they're used to seeing. You know, I've been around Bitcoin for a long time, <laughs> and dealing with counterparties has always been perhaps one of the most difficult parts of buying or acquiring Bitcoins. Been able to observe goxings on a regular basis <laughs> <laughs> since the first time when it when it ran up to thirty two dollars from about a, a like about a dollar. Uh, yeah, summer two thousand eleven. Yeah, yeah, summer t- two thousand eleven. Uh, you know, stampings now, $5 million getting lost uh, at Bitstamp. Are we finally beginning to see the professionalization of Bitcoin start to happen where these types of goxings and stampings are are hopefully a thing of the past, that these bad actors, these unprofessional, non-mature uh, actors are just getting flushed out of the system and we're going to see much more uh, professional and capable actors? Yeah, I certainly think so. And I think we're witnessing that right now, to be honest. To, to all credit to the early entrepreneurs, before Bitcoin became such a big uh, mainstream topic with a lot of venture capital flowing into it, it was difficult to attract 10 to $15 million, whatever necessary capital to build really, really high, high-grade security infrastructure, both physical, software, and hardware. Um, so the initial efforts that, that became large um, were done on a shoestring budget with not you know, very large developer teams. And so they, you know, obviously had certain weaknesses that, that don't make it appropriate once Bitcoin's market cap, which is several billion dollars. And I think the, the latest round of exchanges that we've seen come out, both spot exchanges and derivatives exchanges have quite a bit of venture capital behind them and therefore are able to attract large experienced teams. Um, there are a lot of people, my colleagues from Goldman that have left to join Bitcoin companies. Um, and so with these resources, they've been able to bring a different level of talent to design these exchanges. And also, not just from the, the security point of view, but also be able to invest in the regulatory framework. So complying with relative, you know, the appropriate FinCEN laws, in our case, being able to apply to the CFTC, which is not exactly a very cheap procedure to do, um, but is made possible, you know, recently because of all the VC capital that's flowed in the industry. So I think this next generation of exchanges will be very professional efforts that are very well regulated as well. Yeah, so we've had a pretty serious interview talking about, you know, the sixth network effect of the financialization. Uh, but Bitcoin's a lot of fun. You know, the entertainment value here is just kind of <laughs> unbelievable. Do you have a story to tell? Like, what, what's kind of the, the most fun you've had in Bitcoin or just kind of craziest story uh, that, you, that you've had in your, your career <laughs> so far in the Bitcoin landscape? You know, I think for me, especially living here in New York, the stories that always surprise me are the ones that show how widely followed Bitcoin is. You know, I'm not just the, the geeks like myself that have computer science backgrounds, but I have a friend who has this Bitcoin debit card. And I did this experiment for, where for a month here in New York City, I would use exclusively that. And I would meet people and bartenders and I pay my tab with it. And he's like, what's this? I'm like, well, it debits from my, from my Bitcoin account. And he's like, oh, man, I just got paid for a job last week. It was like a construction job in Bitcoin. And to see that kind of penetration and just the way it's captured the zeitgeist is just 
Um, especially here in New York City, has been really rewarding and just also crazy at the same time. <laughs> kind of crazy fun. Like, yeah, I mean, there was a time when, like, Bitcoin, <laughs> nobody had any <laughs> yeah, idea crickets, what it was. Right. Like, crickets. Oh, it's magic internet money. <laughs> now we're trading it with the uh, swap execution facilities and other uh, fancy financial tools. Uh, it's been a great interview. Thanks for being on the podcast. We've had Paul Chow, CEO and founder of LedgerX. Uh, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me, Trace. Be sure to get a copy of the free Bitcoin guide at freebitcoinguide.com. Got a question or suggestion? Record your voice at bitcoin.kn. Don't be shy. To help the show, share bitcoin.kn with friends, post about it on Reddit, and otherwise spam the interwebs. Your iTunes comments and five-star reviews are very important to us. Please continue tuning in to the Bitcoin Knowledge Podcast, where we release interviews with the top people in the Bitcoin world. Now take some choline and let that Bitcoin knowledge consolidate.